Want to be a part of the conversation? Then let us know on the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's news talk, TNT Radio. Propaganda versus the truth. You're with Swedish-British journalist Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's news talk, TNT. Hello, welcome to my show. We've got... um, Interesting news for you today, uh, but I just uh, like to comment on the news that uh, the Australian Parliament uh, voted with uh, Assange today. I think that's very good news. I think it's uh, long since overdue that the Australians uh, broke their apron strings to the mother country or the two mother countries, if you include the United States. So that's a good news story that we'll be following. I had to rewrite my script a few minutes ago because of a a rather disturbing development. Um, I was going to talk about the Munich Security Conference, which is the CONFAB of defense ministers and prime ministers and security officials from dozens of countries, including the Chinese, but not the Russians. It's a sort of Cannes film festival, if you like, of the security community. And uh, God knows what deals and plans are being worked out in the corridors in Munich. It's a 60th anniversary and there were many things on the menu. But what I can guarantee will be uh, one of the main topic is the bombshell that Alexei Navalny, who is uh, a sort of opposition finger, figure in Russia who's been jailed for many years. I'm not saying fairly by any means, but uh, the Russians say he's a kind of Western asset and they say he's not no popularity at home. Anyway, he's been a, a jail in jail somewhere in Siberia and he's dead. He's The announcement of his death uh, was broke just as I went on the show, so I don't know what the causes are, but we can guess. I don't know who did it. Uh, it'll be a source of speculation uh, in, in the future days and coming days, but it could be an explosion that could lead to developments uh, unfavorable to peace, I think. And that's what worries me. I mean, is it a coincidence this news breaks just as the defense ministers and security officials and heads of intelligence services and uh, the prime ministers go to their lunch break at the Munich Security Conference and mingle and discuss what we should do about the pesky Russians and their tyrannous instincts. Um, and Navalny uh, was, was sort of a poster boy a few years ago for the uh, Russian uh, democratic opposition as seen uh, by the West. And um, I've been warning, uh, well, as always with these things, you've got to ask, qui bono, who benefits? And I'd say, um, I just want to go back. I've been warning for the for the last two weeks or so that um, war, with the war quietening down and, and Putin telling Tucker Carlson his famous interview last week that he was seeking peace, even seeking a ceasefire, Tucker Carlson going around to Dubai and saying almost the same thing, that off the record, it's clear that the Russians want peace. Even Reuters leaked an article saying that the Russians were looking for a ceasefire. And with the Ukraine's losing on the battlefield and the war toning down, it's very interesting to note that the Munich Security Conference Index, which is published by this uh, this security-minded, I mean, they're not uh, patsies or, or, or walkovers, they're rather pro-NATO. They, they published a survey this week to coincide with the conference, I think of thousands of Europeans and Americans and people in the third world, who all said that they were not particularly worried about Russia, with one exception in Britain, which still places uh, Russia as its number one concern in the world. And of course, the British media are very closely aligned to the intelligence agencies. Uh, but in, in in America, it's it's the Russian threat has dropped to place number four. In uh, Germany, it's dropped to place number seven. In France, it's on place number four. So, you know, what's uh, 
what uh, and uh, i think in italy it's off the scale and people uh, prioritize as dangers islamic terrorism migration in in the case of france forest fires so the french think forest fires are a bigger danger to their country than the russian threat so isn't it awfully convenient that we have the death of this man who is the sort of poster boy of R russian democracy if you like uh, dying apparently on a walk or something was it would the russians really time it so that uh, for maximum unfavorability in terms of coverage of the event uh, i've always as i said um last week the news filtered through on twitter i've got to verify it of course but i'm going to try and get a guy on from ukrainian leaks who's a dissident movement in ukraine i think he's based outside ukraine who has more info on this but there's some rumors whether there's a plot against uh, macron the french president who's going to go to um to, to to Kiev and there's going to be an attack on him which could then be blamed on the Russians again the sort of false flag operation to get us all into war from the western deep state chiefly the British in my view to and the Ukrainians of course to get us into a global war with Russia so that didn't happen or if it happened it's a rumor but of course now we've got Navalny did Ukrainian intelligence officials and assassins go up to Siberia where maybe he wasn't that closely guarded and poison him or assassinate him? Or was it Russian hardliners who don't want, who didn't like Putin's approach to uh, to Tucker Carlson that, you know, we want, we're going to have peace? I guess that's possible as well. Anyway, we can be sure that things are not what we seem. And if we're not going to be dragged into a global war, we've got to be very, very observant and keep a very close eye on our political leaders. And of course, unfortunately, intelligence services in all our countries are basically unaccountable. Uh, but anyway, we are now going to go to uh, uh, Basil Valentine, our news producer, with other news on the schedule today. Basil, what's going on? We'll talk to you after the break. This is TNT Radio. There's a lot going on, so it's important to stay informed and up to date. Get ready, because here we go. At the top, 30 minutes past and when it breaks. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to TNT. This is Pella Neroth-Taylor Show, and we've got our news producer, Basil Valentine, with interesting news for us. What's going on in the world and in the UK, Basil? Uh, the crisis of democracy, Pele. If 83% of an electorate do not vote for the winning candidates, then you could hardly say that the winner has a ringing endorsement or a mandate if only able to garner 17% of the electorate. Agreed? Mm. I agree. I mean, yeah, that's sure. a, I mean, that's a figure that if it was in mm. uh, in Russia or North Korea, you'd say, well, you know, 83 percent of the population do not support mm. this government. So surely mm. they have no uh, no legitimacy. But mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, with our bizarre first past the post system in the United Kingdom on very low turnouts, uh, mm. Those are the numbers that the Labour Party achieved to secure by-election victories last night in Wellingborough, in Northamptonshire and in Kingswood. Uh, mm. How can you win the seat with only 17% of the electorate? The answer mm. is simple, on a very low turnout, because mm. quite simply, people do not like any of the choices on offer. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm. Labour's concern, however, is one identified by its dreadful leader, Keir Starmer, at the beginning of the year, which is that voters are not really moving their way, but are instead are so disillusioned with politics that they're staying at home. One Labour mm. activist told The Guardian 
The message on the doorstep was the same everywhere I went. Voters hate all of us. Yeah. I mean, the trouble is with, uh, I think Keir Starmer is going to win this. But uh, as you said, I think that um, it seems to me that a lot of the, the, what do you call it, the red wall voters in the UK who voted for, who are basically traditional Labour voters, but who voted for Brexit, partly because they wanted a bit of pride to hold on to and they wanted lower immigration, didn't they? And of course, the Tories have comprehensively failed on that. It's 700,000 a year. And I think, I mean, this is the un unsayable, but, you know, I think the fact that uh, they voted for the Tories, a traditional, you know, white middle-class party, and they end up with three of the four main, main posts occupied by non-white people, which is total difference from what Britain is still an overwhelmingly uh, white country. I'm sure that in the pubs in the north, they're kind of making comments about that, saying we didn't vote for these guys. What's happening to our country? And uh, of course, they suspect that Labour is going to offer more of the same thing because they're the traditionally they're the, the party of minorities and of open borders, you know, even more than the Tories. So they are not, they're just uh, unhappy about both parties, aren't they? Would you say that uh, immigration is the main reason uh, or are there other reasons why the Tories are unpopular? Uh, immigration is certainly one of them, there's no doubt. The Reform Party of Richard Tice picked up roughly 10% of the vote in both constituencies. That's much less than 10% of the electorate, but 10% of the people that bothered to vote voted reform, which is a sizable chunk, and most of those will have been former Conservative supporters. So that is enough, again, with the first-past-the-post system, to mm. derail the Tories in literally dozens of seats up and down the country. I mean, a lot of uh, Westminster constituencies are, are, are relatively close, uh, mm. you know, in terms of the number of votes cast for both major parties, such that, you know, uh, an insurgent taking 10% of the vote away from the Tories is enough to, mm. uh, to you know, to, to lose them the seats. Uh, but, of course, it doesn't mean that reform will actually win any seats themselves. They could get a million mm. votes around mm. the country, or two million for that matter. Mm. But if they're roughly evenly distributed in different constituencies, they won't get any seats at all. Um, mm. You know, I think that the lack of proportional representation is one of the major factors uh, mm. in the public's disillusionment, because it means that new parties cannot break into mainstream politics. Um, That's right. Although so, we're you know, what, see... Go on. Do you think the Tories are going to be wiped out at the election? Because obviously no. they've benefited from... No. No. Uh, th these results were very, very bad for the Conservatives. And when you think uh, how, what the awful state the Labour Party is in, uh, engulfed in yet another phony anti-Semitism crisis mm. over candidates uh, making remarks critical of Israel that just erupted this week. Um, it achieved a 28.5% swing from the Conservatives in the Wellingborough constituency, uh, giving it its biggest victory over the Tories since 1994, when John wow. Smith was leader, of course, shortly before the landslide of 1997. Um, and, uh, you know, the second biggest victory over the Conservatives in a by-election since the Second World War. 
Um, so the conservative vote really did completely collapse mm. uh, from over 50% to just over 20. Mm -hmm. um, this and it kind translates of thing, into seats. That would be oh, a very it would, few. It would, it? Would, it would possibly reduce the conservatives to less than 100 seats. But these by-election predictions are extremely dangerous yeah. because people mm. go back to their main parties usually in, in, in by-elections. Mm. What it does make me think uh, is likely to be the outcome in Westminster this morning is that the chattering behind Rishi Sunak's back will get louder and the mm. knives will be sharpened for him because at the end of the day, the Tories are very much a personality-led party <clears throat> mm. and the man at the top carries the can and at the moment that man is Rishi Sunak and uh, if Conservatives feel that getting rid of him and replacing him with someone else, anyone else, possibly even the return of Boris Johnson, believe it or not, yeah. if they think that that will improve their chances of holding on to their jobs and to power, then they will do it. So even though the time right. frame, the window for getting rid of Sunak is short, these results mm. were so bad that... Um, Okay, I'm now going to be a bit cons conspiratorial, and I, I don't have any evidence. Obviously, one, one doesn't have evidence for a lot of things because they are going behind closed doors. But I mean, I know that Sunak has been resisting the uh, British deep state and their war on Russia. I mean, there were leaks early on saying he's not as vested, invested in this war as Boris Johnson is. Boris Johnson, of course, has been wearing his uh, Churchill act and saying we need conscription for or against Russia. So the British deep state would love to have Johnson back. And that's what worries me. The Tories might say, well, we, he's a vote winner. He'll, he reaches the parts that uh, other Tory leaders don't reach. He'll win, win back the red wall. Maybe they'll go for him again. He's a vote winner. At the same time, as the deep state get the man who uh, wants to prosecute a war against Russia, now with additional evidence that the Russians seemingly have bumped off uh, this leading dissident guy, Navalny, timed to happen with the... Uh, the victory uh, or the the massive loss of the Tories uh, in, uh, in in these by-elections? Well, I didn't know that Sunak had been sort of vaguely resisting the push to war yeah. with Russia. His rhetoric seems to be, you know, very much in line with his predecessors and with his European colleagues that, you know, yeah. uh, and with Biden who came out with a statement last night saying sort of, you know, Ukraine's loss is our loss. It must be, you right. know, I don't know who right. they think is going to actually do the fighting. It's been right. an absolute tragedy for the population mm. of Ukraine. I mean, I think this uh, sort of lots of talking heads on American TV saying this is fantastic because we're fighting Russia without losing any men, you know. But uh, mm. with respect to your point, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, these days, anything is possible. The only thing is that the Conservative Party has its own rules about replacing its leader. Uh, mm. And while I've no doubt the UK deep state has numerous plants all over the Parliamentary Conservative Party, uh, I don't know whether those will be enough to get the letters into the 1922 committee, to, you know, uh, and this mm. uh, rather labyrinthine process that's involved in unseating a conservative leader irrespective of whether or not they're prime minister so sure. and, and people may feel that johnson is damaged goods and that really they need yeah, yeah, somebody sure. else altogether but i think they don't the really, lot of tory party hate him don't they i mean they really think he's a, as a charlatan and a and an idiot and so on so i, I guess a lot well, of them wouldn't want him back anyway yeah exactly <laughs> so 
Yeah. Um, so uh, well, we'll see yeah, how this story develops. That really, the, the mm. takeaway is that we've got two uniquely unpopular uh, major parties in Britain, both of them with all but congruent views on the genocide in Gaza, the war with Russia, and the continuation of the neoliberal policies that have impoverished us all. It's every bit as applicable to the UK. Um, what we saw Tucker Carlson doing in Russia, I don't know if you know, you've seen his latest shorts, uh, involves him going around a Russian supermarket, filling yeah. the trolley with, with goods for a weekly shop, which he mm. and his colleagues over there estimated would cost them $400 in the United States, and it cost them just over 100 prompting yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, prompting Tucker to uh, wonder about the honesty and efficacy yeah. of American capitalism after all. And it's every bit as applicable to the UK, hauling living well, standards, I unrepresentation. Go on. I think, no, no, I think that I saw that Tucker video. It's a few minutes long, and he walks around this huge Russian supermarket, absolutely packed with goods. Because I'm sure, and I think that's an eye-opener for many people. I mean, I, I hadn't been to Russia for a long time, but I, and I was surprised at the uh, supermarkets. And uh, millions more will have now seen it, because I think they assume that Russians are living in sort of gulags, eating, queuing up for the potato soup or something, you know, these old images. Because of a lot of the historians that we have who dominate the liberal newspaper pages, they can't stop writing about Stalin and the gulags, people like Anne Applebaum and Timothy Snyder. And, you know, maybe people realise there's that uh, Sting song, Russians love their children too, you know. I mean, most Russians want yes. peace and they just want to go to their supermarkets. And well, exactly. Be exactly. Anyway, it's, it's this to... demonization that we've got to get away from, Pele, isn't it? Yeah, you yeah. know, Absolutely. the demonization of the other. Most people do not want war. They want to prosper and shop in supermarkets and go back to their families. Anyway, That's Basil, right. we'll talk further on Monday. I hope you have a good weekend. And uh, Thank you. Oh, very quickly, if I can just jump in very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I will be at the screening of the new Julian Assange film, on Sunday at the Rio Cinema in Dalston, London, at one o'clock, the Trust Ball. Be there or be square. And of course, next week, TNT are in London outside the Old Bailey, broadcasting live and direct on Tuesday and Wednesday. Thank you. If you want to see Basil and in, in real life, go to the Rio. Thank you very much. See you on Monday, Basil. Bye. This is TNT Radio. TNT's Mark Morano. This just in. We have a new way that's proven effective in dealing with climate protesters who deign to block highways, streets, and other public areas. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this appears to be the most effective way. We have a, uh, we have a field shot, a correspondent on the scene. Let's go to clip four and take a look at how to deal with climate protesters when they block your way on your morning commute. to see protests shut down but obviously when you're blocking traffic and you're doing that you need to be dealt with i thought this was a great vigilante way of dealing with it mark morano on today's news talk tnt CO2, the world stops breathing. 
CO2 sustains all life on Earth. Government, the WEF, and the elite believe humans are the carbon they really want to be rid of. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hi, this is the Pelinero's Taylor Show. Welcome back to TNT, the channel where truth resides. Uh, we've got today with us Henrik Martinger, who's a, a Swedish uh, novelist and is famous, or I should say, famous in my, well known in my eyes because he's the um, the son of one of the true whistleblowers in Swedish politics and who uh, uh, suffered for it. Um, his name is Jerry Martinger, and he was a well-known prosecutor and MP in the Swedish public life in the 1980s. I think he was tipped to be Minister of Justice in the incoming Conservative government. But then everything started to go wrong. And the reason why everything started to go wrong was that he uh, started to expose the deep state truth behind the assassination of Swedish Prime Minister Olof Palme in 1986. Now, I've talked to about Olof Palme at length on this show on various episodes. And he was sort of a Swedish Kennedy, and his assassination was Europe's Kennedy assassination. If you like, he was killed because he was a peacemaker and was looking for compromise with the Russians or the Soviets as they were then. And he was much disliked by the Swedish security and intelligence services, and maybe intelligence services further afield. It's still an ongoing investigation among brave journalists in Sweden. But Hen Henrik has a fantastic insight because he will tell us what happens to people who dig around in that assassination if they come too close to the truth and it's worrying stuff. Henrik, welcome to the show. Tell us about uh, your you. father and what he did to get him in such trouble. Yeah, it is exactly as you mentioned here. The bottom line in this story is that if you stick your nose in things that doesn't concern you, you will get problems in the process. Uh, we have the Palme assassination in 1986 with our Prime Minister, Olaf Palme, getting shot on open street in 1986. And the lead investigator in this uh, assassination um, investigation, Hans Holmer, uh, was the county chief of police in Stockholm during that, uh, before the murder. And he later became, uh, became the lead investigator. And he had a driver named uh, Rolf Dahlgren. And he told my father in the House of Parliament in 1989 that they drove around in a very, it, it all starts with this story uh, and, uh, and uh, things uh, starting to get worse after that. that he told my father that they drove around uh, in a very mysterious way. He, in the lead investigator in the Palme assassination, he was the county chief of police in Stockholm during that time. But the story goes short, very shortly uh, like this. Uh, Rolf Dahlgren and the Hans Holmer, county chief of police, they drove around during the murder night in a very mysterious way that he could never understand Rolf Dahlgren. Uh, that little excursion, um, he pointed to different spots uh, during their drive. Go there, go there. Uh, I want to go there. I want. And he met several men during the ride. Uh, he went out. He he went back to the car. Uh, and the main um, the main thing in this story is that he they passed by the murder site seven minutes after. Olaf Palme was shot. They passed by the murder site, and the lead, the later lead investigator in the Palme case, Hans Mir, didn't even want to go out, but he saw it himself. He saw Olaf Palme lying there on the street, but he didn't want to go out. 
and he has been lying about his whereabouts during that night. He said he was in another town, Borlänge, but a private investigator told everyone else that no, that was never the case. He he asked the receptionist, everyone else uh, at that hotel, and they couldn't find any trace of Hans Holmer living there. So it all starts with this story: Han, uh, Rolf Dargen, the driver, telling me, telling my father all of this in uh, the hall, House of Parliament in 1989. And okay, after I'll just that, stop you. Yeah, yeah, I'll stop you there because we'll go on, on to the break. But I'll just summarize what you're saying, uh, and you'll tell yes. me what happened to your father as a sub as a result of spreading this news. We've got yes. uh, the day after the murder. Uh, the county chief of police in Stockholm, Hans Holmer, took over the investigation and became a yes. media figure in Sweden. I mean, he was a, a darling of the housewives, as it were, and his gravelly voice kind of calmed people down that the investigation was going down the right track and they were hunting all these people. But in fact, what we now know, according to to, to the driver uh, who told your father, the driver of Hans Holmer, they were driving around the murder scene on the very evening yes. the murder took place. Which suggests he yes. was kind of almost waiting for it to happen, and then he, when yes. it happened, he, he, he drove away. Uh, the driver dropped him off, and then um, Hans Holmer took over the investigation and led the murder yes. investigation, as we now know, into completely wrong trails, uh, which have uh, haunted or possessed the Swedish public because they they followed his stories. I mean, first he was blaming the Kurds. Yes, and, and he, he reminded blaming... him, the driver, he reminded the driver, you can't tell anyone about this story, what we have been mm. done, doing there, here. He yeah. reminded the driver. And well, what's, we'll, we'll talk about that after the break, a quick break yes. of the news headlines, but we're going to say is that um, what, I've, I've been following the, the, the Palmer murder for years, and uh, what you had to say on a, on a recent Swedish podcast is absolutely sensational because what it shows is that if you do have access to the truth, you get in trouble yes. for it. Anyway, yes. we're going to go over to the news headlines. This is TNT Radio. What do they want? Exciting news. Brace yourself. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. The wife of WikiLeaks co-founder Julian Assange has warned her husband will die if the UK greenlights his extradition to the US next week, where he faces life in prison on espionage charges. The director of the US Food and Drug Administrations admitted the agency failed to accurately inform Americans about the dangers of the COVID-19 vaccines. And the US has claimed Iranian soldiers are on the ground in Yemen, helping the Houthis launch attacks on ships in the Red Sea. We're the pinup boys and poster girls for free speech. We just don't look as impressive as Vladimir Putin shirtless on a horse. Yeah. 24 7, 365. We never stop sifting fact from fiction, misinformation from the truth. From government overreach to the latest on mandates, big tech censorship to propaganda gone mad. Listen to TNT Radio and get the news and views direct from our expert presenters and commentators anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk this is TNT Radio. Welcome back to the Pelinerath Taylor Show. Uh, this is TNT, the channel for truth. And we've got Henrik Martinger, who's a, a Swedish uh, a novelist and whose father was one of the chief whistleblowers in the uh, uh, Olaf Palmer assassination case and suffered for it. Henrik, what happened after your, your father uh, heard from this driver that um, Hans von Meer seemed to be sort of complicit or at least had foreknowledge of the assassination? The actual investigation from the Swedish government 
the Swedish top Swedish police chief was somehow implied in this murder of the century in Sweden. Tell me what happened then well, to your father. He contacted the police superintendent at the National Operate, uh, Operative uh, uh, Department, the Rikspolisen, uh, Roland Stål, and he handed over uh, what uh, what the driver had said to him. He handed over handed over it to Roland Stål, a police, uh, his notes and uh, um, and yeah, and other things. And they tried. Uh, they tried. Um, um, they tried to see the truth in all the years um, coming after. And um, um, yeah, I'm lost. Um, uh, yes, uh, my father. He got harassed after this. Uh, after trying to uh, search the truth, he got mm-hmm. harassed because he got. Uh, Harassing phone calls, someone uh, uh, stuck holes in his uh, uh, um, uh, there were um, there. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting lost. It's okay. <laughs> um, they stuck some, holes they, in something. He, he, in, in, yeah. in he was harassed during many years. Yes, someone pinched mm. holes in her in, in his car hi, uh, hires. And uh, flowers were uh, destroyed in his garden, and uh, many things happened uh, after mm. the years after having heard that story. Mm. And he was uh, in court himself, uh, being accused of having made a, a harassment calls himself. But he could prove he could prove that he never have done it himself, because he mm-hmm. had seven alibis. He had seven alibis. And he he didn't have a reason to do it, and um, um, yeah. Was he making? He was making sex calls to um, his yes, was he, his children's classmates, parents, or something. Yes, yes, but it wasn't the evidence wasn't strong enough uh, because he could show that he was at other places when mm. the calls were made, and a white car was seen outside our house. 20 minutes after a harassing call was made in another place. And this white car, I've seen it myself. It, sta- it was standing outside our house uh, during the night. And uh, I think it, it, wa- it wanted to make itself known uh, that we have a, uh, like, it, it, they wanted to make themselves known for my father, Jerry. Uh, mm. that someone was behind this. And we were, I can give you an example of, he has seven alibis. We were sitting at a beach and during a summer day in um, Slita on Gotland, an island at South Sweden. And we met another, a, a friend to Jerry there called Jane. Uh, and we were sitting there the whole day long. And... Um, uh, the peculiar thing is, uh, the pe- peculiar thing here is that a harassing phone call was made from Visby, like four Swedish miles away. Maybe you can translate translate four ma- miles to the viewers. Yeah, forty kilometers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 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 it was made harassing ho- phone call. He couldn't mm-hmm. have made that because we were sitting mm-hmm. on the beach with a friend of his mm-hmm. and my mm-hmm. siblings and him. Mm-hmm. And this is this isn't the only thing that's been uh, that's been very weird during the years. We have a, a man called Carl Lidum, an ambassador and minister 
he was ambassador in Paris during this mm. time. Many times when people try to call my father, Jerry Martinger, during the years, they end up calling Carl Boom. It's mm -hmm. like very weird switchovers in the telephones, mm -hmm. and we have. Uh, mm -hmm. I can. I can. Do, I have several names on a list that mm -hmm. can testify to this. They end up in, at Khalid Mums, mm -hmm. and we have other switchovers as well. Uh, and uh, the main, uh, the main uh, thing in this story, uh, the main thing is that th these people that ha that have been um, talking to my father. And they have, uh, they have uh, ended up having strange connections and everything. Mm. So uh, we have mm. that as well. And he got, he got letters several years mm -hmm. after. He got letters. They confessing to these crimes, and mm. these letters. Another journalist got this as well. Uh, John Yilberg. Mm. He had a, um, mm. he had a, a magazine or something investigating truth. Mm. And they got mm. letters, and they could say they could trace. What Jerry, my father Jerry, did, and this journalist, you go there. Mm. I we, we know that you have been here. We know that you have been here. We will we will destroy your cars. We will do this, do this. Mm. Their cars were destroyed many times. So if you are a whistleblower, if you are a whistleblower mm. trying to find the truth in matters like mm. this, you can. Um, mm. You know what's waiting for you. I mean, we have mm -hmm. other uh, examples yeah. as well. Can I just stop you there? Because I well, I can yes. give you an example. First, I want to say, I mean, I, I remember the Snowden papers when they came out. Uh, you know, he was yeah. the CIA whistleblower. And one of the lesser known papers it was actually in the mainstream media, but no one else picked it up. I think it was NBC News. They talked about this thick program called JTRIG, J-T-R-I-G. And it was yeah. a, a MI6, I think, did it. And they said that's a, a program of harassment of people who cause trouble basically yeah. and it's an escalating yeah. series of harassments that might even end up with an assassination Horrible. but they people will usually get the message after the first misplaced phone call or the first harassment phone call or your first yes. slashed tire or your first broken window or your first mm. and i know that some of the palmer investigative writers have had uh, was it you said that they had they'd had their bookcase their bookshelf reorganized you know like books in their bookshelf um that that guy class you said Close uh, Hilda, yeah. yeah, something like that happened to him. And I'm going to just say yes. a, a little example that sort of happened to me. After I made my preliminary interview with you two weeks ago, I drove to another town in my car, and there was a strange piece of plastic that yeah. seemed attached to the bottom of my car, and I, I scrapped, took it away. And then the next day, the car had some problems, and never had any problems in 15 years, and we were in, in at a garage now. And then that the very moment when I was leaning down to, to remove this piece of plastic, which was made the car impossible to drive, I got two phone calls within one minute of each other, one from Romania and one from Slovakia, because I had a plus four zero and plus four two code. And these were non-existent numbers when I tried to call back. So is that just a coincidence or am I now on there? Yeah. It's like a, it's like a yeah. virus or something. I'm I'm now tainted with you guys because I've, I've re researched your story. <laughs> You, so anyway you're starting to wonder you started to wonder but i mean you can you can talk to many people not just like jerry of course jerry is a very strong case but you can talk to many people because here by we have uh, another person we we talk, we were talking about another person got a pig head outside their door sometime a outside his have, door yeah, yeah pig head yeah. outside their door and another one uh, was pushed in the subway pushed yeah, and yeah. Died. So he was murdered because he knew too much about 
the uh, weapon affairs the weapon there was yeah. a weapon company called uh, Bofa, yeah. but that's another thing yeah, yeah. but i mean uh, and, and jerry my father jerry he was actually told off by a uh, member of the um, comedy of um uh defense on Anderson. he mm. was told off because he had gotten he, he knew that Jerry was uh, sticking his nose in all the... And he told Jerry, my father, if you continue to do like... Uh, if you continue digging your yeah. nose in this, I'm going to see to it that you your career will, will end. Your career okay. will end if you continue this path. And it did. Henrik, uh, we'll we'll have to wind up there. So basically, what happened to Henrik Gary Martin is he's put, convicted for some kind of sexual harassment, and his career as one of the most promising politicians in Sweden did in fact end. And he, this was a prominent senior guy. If it can happen to him, it can happen to anyone. Anyway, Henrik, uh, really uh, good to talk to you, and uh, we will end there. I'm afraid uh, this is TNT Radio. Now for the break. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. So I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, because I'm doing a climate roundtable tomorrow. I'm assuming that the network that invited me on is probably the only network that's left around this part of the country that actually allows climate skeptics to be on. It'll be interesting because I'm sure there are going to be some people there to challenge me. In any case, when I walked into the hotel, the person at the front desk was from Adelaide, Australia, the city of churches. See, I learned something, right? And I got to thinking that maybe tomorrow I will spring on the people that are there for almost unprecedented climate events that have occurred around Australia that are very, very important around the climate. Now, not directly with Australia, but north of Australia, the typhoon season, despite the fact that we supposedly had an El Nino going, was way, way below normal. Third lowest ever. That's very unusual. And that was the first hint that this El Nino wasn't what it was cracked up to be. As a matter of fact, the Southern Oscillation Index, which is the longest running metric of the El Nino, never got into El Nino category this year until now. But that was unprecedented when you had what we call the Oceanic Nino Index being so strong. That's two unprecedented things. Number three, the crash that is occurring in the Southern Oscillation Index is going to be the greatest on record from January to February. In fact, it may be the greatest on record from one month to another. It is unprecedented to see January with an above SOI and then February crashing the way this is. Now, in 1978, we had a weak El Nino going and then it crashed in February. By the way, they had all those floods in Los Angeles in 78. How about that? The fourth thing, the unprecedented warming of the ocean just to the east of Australia in a month or two. See that? Tonight's climate and weather watchdog was all about Australia. It's because I ran into someone from Adelaide. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastoni asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you got. When a crisis hits, close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines, ready to serve, healing, nurturing, rescuing, protecting, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations has never been more important, and it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you, the Nonprofit Alliance. Discussing national and international issues. You're listening to Pella Neuroth-Taylor on today's News Talk TNT. 
Hi, welcome back to the uh, TNT Pell and Eros Taylor show, where we try and get to the bottom of uh, lots of things. Um, we've got with us uh, Roger Bolton, who is uh, one of uh, Britain's uh, best known investigative journalists in the past and who's now retired, has worked for uh, Thames Television and for, for the BBC for a long time, and now runs a blog which questions some of the BBC's or holds them to account. Um, Roger, we were we ended on a cliffhanger last week, or was it last week or two weeks ago, and um, uh, whether MI6 had uh, done in uh, Olaf Palme, the Swedish Prime Minister. And I don't know if you watched the last segment, uh, but I just interviewed um, a young man whose father was a uh, the upcoming expected to be minister of justice as a prominent mp who started to dig around in the in the palma murder and he found he talked to the driver of of the chief of police in sweden who'd spent the evening driving around what came to be the murder scene so uh he then took over the police investigation the next day and led it down all these sorts of weird trails you know anyway uh this guy tried to get it exposed talked to journalist friends and and talked to people mps this this senior politician and he started to get harassment calls and harassment letters. They punctured the 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 tire, his tires. Then they made then there were sort of sexual harassment calls to the parents of his son's classmates, and that led to conviction in court and the total utter destruction of this man's career. And he's now sort of you know long gone and a forgotten figure. So that's a kind of story. If you start to do these things, you know that's what you can end up doing. And I, I'm just going to say I. Uh, remember reading the Snowden papers when you know, the Snowden story came out, and it said that the Western intelligence agencies have this harassment program of people who start causing trouble, of which maybe an assassination is the ultimate worst thing you could do, but an, a graded series of warnings to stay out of uh, topics that are a bit sensitive. Now, what you the, the very last thing you said in our last interview was that you said, because I, I have two sources, one in South Africa, one in Sweden, and the Swedish guy has a lot of connections to people uh, because of his position, they both said that the orders to, for the assassination, although they're carried out by the Swedes and the South Africans working together, actually came from Britain and M Margaret Thatcher. They said Margaret Thatcher. You said Margaret Thatcher. No, Margaret Thatcher wouldn't do something like that. I have no evidence except what these two guys are saying. What 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 are your thoughts on this? Do these sorts I'm, of things I'm, happen? Well, they do, but I'm slightly skeptical about quite a lot of this. Uh, having said that. If you go back historically a bit, you do come across some rather nasty things. For example, in 1960, probably 69, there was certainly a plot against the elected prime minister of uh, the UK, Harold Wilson, by an unhappy elements in MI6. And uh, I don't know how significant it was, but it was a, a plot and there was a meeting in which a number of people discussed whether to, as it were, form a national government. Lord Mountbatten was dragged into this meeting. According to him, he got out very quickly. And it's true that there are a number of people in MI6 that come through the war. They were very favorably inclined towards South Africa, which was part of the a very close um, intelligence cooperation uh, between South Africa and the UK. Mm. And this right-wing uh, grouping were very unhappy with Harold Wilson, who they thought was a communist spy, et cetera, et cetera. He wasn't. They mm. couldn't distinguish between socialism and communism. And so there was a plot there, not that serious, but it was um, worrying. Subsequently, of course, there was then this obsession within MI5 and MI6 about there being a Russian spy and lots of investigations and general forms of hysteria. There was a guy called George Young, 
who was deputy head of MI6 at one stage, who formed a very right-wing political grouping. And at a certain point in 69, they were talking about setting up citizens' armies in the UK. He subsequently, George Young, went to South Africa, apartheid South Africa, where he was obviously very happy. So there are these elements, connections in the past. Now, whether you think that the British government, insofar as the British government at the top knew about these things, that's always a big question. What are they told? Mm. Um, mm. I mean, it's another very quick story, which is that um, when one of our biggest spies were dis- was discovered, um, and he was uh, a guy called Sir Anthony Blunt, who was keeper mm. of the Queen's pictures and was one yeah, of yeah. the Russian spies, uh, the Prime Minister wasn't at the time wasn't told about it. Civil mm-hmm. Service did a deal. Sir Anthony just talked mm. to us a little, and um, you can stay in your job, and nobody will know anything about it. So there's always the question mark about what actually gets up through the intelligence services to their political masters. Uh, and the yeah, other question, of course, is the extent yeah. to which the political masters want to know. Mm. They often prefer to be in ignorance. Long way of saying is, I don't think Margaret Thatcher would have been in such a thing. Yeah. I would not rule out rogue elements of MI6 being involved. Mm. Okay. I mean, I remember that the most famous... Um, instance of where you do have a, a British political lead. I, I agree with everything you say. You can't know who knew, and everyone is sort seeking plausible deniability and so on. But I know that um, a British minister in the 1950s, Anthony Nutting, said that he was told while he was at the Savoy that Anthony Eden phoned him up and said, I want NASA killed. Do you understand? I want him murdered. So, and and I think uh, NASA, uh, some of the people around, um, what's his name, uh, Eden, were sort of on the imperial part of the Tory party. Uh, Duncan San- Sandys, is that right? And someone else. Well, Duncan, oh, Sands was a, was a, Duncan Sands was a son-in-law of Winston Churchill. I That's think what right. you've got to look at in 1956, essentially is in, in terms of Anthony Eden, who was our prime minister at the time. He'd w- waited a very long time to succeed Winston Churchill. When he did, he was almost immediately embroiled in the Suez affair. Eden had been very much involved in the 1930s in resigning from the the government in protest about what Hitler was doing. He Mm. saw very much what was happening in terms of Nasser being a Hitler or a Mussolini. Mm. It was while Britain still had real pretensions about being an empire and hadn't Mm. realized what the realities were. So his Mm. view was, in 1956, um, right, we'll intervene, we'll cooperate with the Israeli, the, the, well, in a secret operation with the French and the Israelis mm. to, uh, to intervene in the Suez Canal. But he did say, can nobody kill Nasser? Now, that's mm-hmm. a reflection also, I think, the Antietam's mental state. But he did see mm. it, he did say it. And subsequently, mm-hmm. Anthony Nussing, who you mentioned, resigned from government, disgusted by the plotting, the secret plotting and the lies. Mm. That had gone on between the French, the Israelis, and the Brits about intervening mm. in the Suez Canal. Mm. I wish we could talk much longer. This I'll, I'll quickly go jump to the 1980s now because we say we don't know who was giving orders and if there is a British trail at all. Okay, but what I I've done a little bit of work on the on a related story, uh, and um, you you remember the 80s and you know you'll probably remember that uh, there were these submarine intrusions in Swedish waters which everyone blamed on the Soviets and they seem to be uh, they like the sort of Loch Ness monster sightings and I lived in Sweden I was a, a young teenager I spent a few years in high school here and nobody could talk about anything else it was on the afternoon news it was like a sort of running story that normally Swedish t- TV news started at 6 p.m but 
now they're running these photo uh, these this live footage of of, uh, of 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 helicopters flying over the swedish fjords and it was all very menacing you know and um a lot of swedish investigators and it was it, 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 uh, it was said to be the soviets planning an invasion and that went these submarines were kind of nosing around in the Swedish archipelago and they even went into Stockholm, Stockholm's inner harbour. And the news headlines were all about the Soviet threat. And um, this was sort of, the, along with the Palmer assassination, this was the big story of the Swedish Cold War, if you like. And um, I remember everyone said, well, Palmer is a Russian spy because obviously these submarines are never being caught. Um, they must be Soviet submarines and Palmer's letting them out, you know. I mean, I remember people saying that, and 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 some of the candidates for his assassination were saying, "Oh well, we had to. He had to go because he was a he was a Soviet spy." Uh, I then uh, in the in the 1990s, a Swedish invest it became like like the Palm assassination itself it became kind of holy grail of Swedish investigative journalists. What really happened, you know? And of course, after the Cold War, the Russians said, "Oh, it wasn't us, you know. We could tell you, we we, we did Katyn in in Poland. That we didn't have a problem. But we we didn't do this." And the Swedish Navy was never able to prove, provide any single piece of forensic evidence to show that it could be a Soviet submarine, apart from the first one in 81. But let's not go into too much detail. Um, so I said, well, why can't you provide evidence? I mean, the Soviets, are, uh, the Russians are, are weak. You know, you, you can offend them. They have no problem with that. And they, they can't hit back. Why don't you reveal any evidence you have? They didn't have it. Anyway, uh, subsequent Swedish investigative television programs found that it was the Brits. There were British and American submarines who... Um, uh, were sort of uh, I, I don't know if it was part of the the per periscope exercise or something, but there were mini subs and so on. I mean, they were quite active in the Baltic, and um, I actually uh, picked up the story. I did a story for the Sunday Times, and I rang up the the Navy minister at the time, a guy called Keith Speed, who's now dead, and he, Margaret Tha he resigned from Margaret Thatcher over the of, before the Falklands War, and he said, yes, yes, we you know it was us sort of thing, and every every order was went straight to the top, but I don't know. Who in, on the Swedish side knew? We we told the military, uh, but Margaret yeah, Thatcher but gave the, every sorry. single order. Yeah, yeah but uh, well, she wouldn't give every single order. She wouldn't be involved. She undoubtedly exactly. would be. Or Francis Pym, yeah, yeah. But uh, Francis Pym, I don't know what this adds up to. I mean, you know, of course, um, you know, Sweden uh, and in the yeah. waters around Sweden, both the Russians and the Western Alliance yeah. are testing each other watching each right. other and there's a particular area where the right. russian submarines would come out and down and of course what was also happening in the 1980s in a very very tough time was russian uh, bombers were coming down from the north and testing the british yeah. um, you know a system and, and they'd come up mm -hmm. and actually they'd wave you you could get you could yeah. film from an RAF count yeah. and show the yeah. russians waving they're all testing each other so it's far yeah. more likely truly that what you're talking about is is a an operation where both the West and uh, and the Russians are involved testing mm. each other out. I don't see that that in, you know, involves a, a great deal of evidence to suggest it would be connected with anything other than the normal precautions. You've well, got to remember. Be, uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, carry on. No, no, no. Sorry, you, you, you're right. All I'm saying is, uh, and I, uh, one Swedish former intelligence official said that they were totally separate things. Uh, but I mean, what it, it created this atmosphere of absolute fear in sweden it was like well, that, a, a, that is, ongoing... I think the, yes i think that's that sort of paranoia that, that starts to happen and i think if you talk to government ministers remember talking once to david Owen, our foreign secretary and to dennis healy before him they were very tough people but they did were very they didn't automatically accept the intelligence they were offered 
Because mm. what tended to happen, there's a lot of people involved in intelligence, got very, if you like, disassoci uh, disassociated from normal life, mm. became rather obsessive about things. Mm. And they sometimes began to develop, you know, conspiracy theories. It's more likely, in my view, when you look at something like Palmer, that it's a member of the intelligence services that gone rogue, than mm. it would be anybody acting under the direct orders of any democratically elected government. Mm. I mean, that you know, governments do, and we've talked about this before, Mrs. Thatcher would say, for example, mm. with the IRA, I will never talk to the IRA. But mm. of course, MI6 did, and she knew they did, but mm. she was able to say, I don't know in that sense of I haven't ordered it, I don't know specifically what mm. they're doing. But she would say things like to MI6, so do what you have to do. Mm. So she gives her deniability, but right. actually the intelligence services, as they should do, mm. keep contacts. Now, you occasionally get rogue elements developing mm. in the intelligence mm. services or people with obsessions. And I think what we saw over Iraq and the American invasion of Iraq mm. is mm. groups of people in the CIA and in MI6 mm. who persuaded themselves that Saddam did have, had nuclear weapons, in, had chemical weapons in the past, that he had them now and they were a threat. Mm. And uh, I think they, they became so obsessed with that, they ignored any evidence, any intelligence mm. that argued the other way. So I think mm. it's one of those things where, you know, the politicians have to be grateful for the intelligence, but skeptical of it. So I think probably well, a rogue element in the intelligence service is more likely. I mean, I, if I could reform the world, I'd say I would like more accountability for the intelligence agencies, because if they're not brought to heel, they can literally start world wars if we're not careful, because if they, if they act, if they have a compromise on their own politicians, that is ways to compromise them, and then they run their own foreign policy and uh, maybe get us into war with Russia, you know. Well, Today, that's a danger. The, you know what we had yeah. in the UK? We had a situation when I tried in 1980 to make Pro-81, make programs by MI5 and MI6. They didn't officially exist. So mm. you could go to the States, you could watch the CIA in front of a Senate committee. But in the UK, the secret services didn't exist. So all the money that was funneled to them from the Treasury, you, you couldn't examine that. Uh, now, that's mm. better now. You know, they're, 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 we have an oversight committee. And uh, I think there's been a significant change. But what hasn't mm. changed is the fact that they serve their masters what they think their masters want. And they become mm. increasingly detached from the real world. So it's mm. vital that, you know, and we need them. Heavens, we need them. Mm. But mm. you should always be quizzical about what they deliver to you. And also, mm. you know, there are a number of people right-wing people who get attracted to the intelligence services and they can yeah. be dangerous by mm. the way left-wing can be as well <laughs> well and that i mean we, we there's so much more to talk about because i wanted to talk about i was reading uh, the, the, the there's a website called media lens which you probably know about and uh, an intelligence uh, a, an intelligence writer called richard keeble i think he was with the observer of the guardian or something and then became an academic at nottingham and he says i i don't have time to read it out now but i mean the Brits are much less open about their intelligence connections between them and journalists uh, and, and, and MI6 than what you, America could talk about the CIA quite quite openly. Uh, but I think my the, the producer here is telling me to hurry up. So I'll say, uh, uh, Roger, I mean, thank you very much for introducing a little bit of skepticism and uh, your, your great well, it's, wisdom. It's half, much appreciated. half skepticism. It's half skepticism. Yeah, yeah. No, it's fine. It's fine. Uh, 
I will uh, be, we, you'll, you'll be getting a call from us again quite soon. Thank you very much, Roger. This is great talk, great talking to you. Have a good day. This is Roger Bolton, a well-known British investigative journalist. Thank you very much. This is TNT Radio. Bye.